Amen. Imagine with me, church, that the Lord used you, and I know he has actually done this in many of your lives, but imagine he used you to uh, bring someone who was lost to faith in Christ. And this person, let's just say that they, they really were not raised in a church, they never been around Christianity much before they met you, and, and, and you brought them the gospel and, and worked with them, and they, and they came to believe, but they don't really know anything outside of just the, the straightforward gospel message. All right, so just imagine that scenario with me. And so they're looking to you to provide to them what they need to know to live the Christian life. They're saying, what now? I believed in Christ, what now? And so you decide, okay, let's meet every week and we're going to do Christianity 101 together. We're going to do a crash course week by week on what you need to know to live the Christian life. What topics, church, would you think to include? Think about it. What, what, where would you start? Where would you go? What would you emphasize from Scripture? My, my guess is that you would probably emphasize the Trinity. At some point, you would tell them that God is three in one, and all that that means. You don't want to emphasize the person and work of Christ. You don't want to em- emphasize the fall and what, what sin is and what it has done to us and, and to humanity. You would emphasize the Holy Spirit. You might emphasize the church and, and, and what the, the universal church is and the local church. And, and you probably want to tell them that there's, there's church membership and church leadership and spiritual gifts to serve the church and to serve the Lord. You, you would emphasize these things, right? You'd probably want to tell them about the story of Israel, the story of the church in the New Testament, how those fit together maybe, begin, begin to help them understand the Bible, what the Bible is, that it's inerrant, it's, it's in, infallible, all these things. I, I go on and on, right? You don't want to talk about heaven, about hell. You don't want to talk about eternity. It's a lot, right? There's a lot to, a lot to choose from, a lot to, a lot to think about, a lot of material to cover. When the Apostle Paul went to Thessalonica, he preached the gospel and a church formed. People believed and a church formed, and these were Gentiles who were not acquainted with Christianity. Some of them were, were Jews, but many of them were Gentiles, and they didn't know all this background knowledge. And so Paul spent time with them doing Christianity 101 with the Apostle Paul, with Professor Paul, right? In the letters of First and Second Thessalonians, we've seen over and over again, we've seen Paul say, remember what I told you when I was with you. Do, do what I said. Remember, I instructed you in these things. So we get these little glimpses into what Paul talked about. Paul, Paul, during his time with the Thessalonians, was aiming to help them live the Christian life in a way that pleased God. And, and he wanted to equip them for that. Well, today's passage is one instance of this. In today's passage, Paul says, Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? What things did Paul tell them? Remember, whatever it was, this was part of Paul's foundational teaching to the church of Thessalonica. Because he was was with them for a short time before he had to leave for persecution. And so those, those months he had, those weeks he had, however long it was, was a time of intense training on the most foundational aspects of the Christian life. What do you need to know to live for the glory of God? And what he taught them then and what he reminds them of in today's passage is eschatology. Eschatology. Eschatology is just the word for the doctrine of the end times. 
All that, all that is encompassed in what we refer to as the end times. When, when, when Jesus comes back and all that's associated with it, this is what Paul's talking about in today's passage. And as we will see, Paul did not give the Thessalonians a thin and simplistic eschatology. In that time when he was with them, he, he did not just give them just a little bit of information to work with. No, part, part of his foundational teaching, this is Christianity 101, according to Paul, was a robust and detailed eschatology. And the reason he did this is because eschatology matters. What God has said about the end times matters. And, and church, I need to confess to you this morning that this text has challenged me this week. It's challenged me because I went to a, a school, for Bible school, that strongly, in my opinion, overemphasized eschatology. Uh, it was a big deal to believe the school's very specific interpretation of things. Emily's nodding her head, Candace nodding her head, because we went to the same school together. And, and, and so, it's a good school, but, but they strongly overemphasized eschatology. And so, so I responded to that by taking on a, an underemphasized eschatology. And this is where, honestly, I've been for a long time. That's why this text challenged me this week, because I had come to a point where I just said, listen, Jesus is coming back. It's all we need to know. What do you think about that statement? Jesus is coming back. That's all we need to know. Sounds good. I've said it before. It's good to emphasize that Jesus is coming back. That is central. That, 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 that's, the, that's the central hub of eschatology, right, about the end times. But church, it's not true that that's all we need to know. It's not true, because God has said more than that. It's not true, it's all we need to know, because God has given us more than that. God, God's been even challenging just my view of, of Scripture through this, that, that on the one hand, we could say the Bible has everything we need. And that's a good statement, that's a true statement, right? You guys agree with that? The Bible has everything we need for life and godliness, it's all in here. But it's different to say we need everything that's in the Bible. You guys get the difference there? We need everything that's in this book. We don't just need the parts that seem relevant to us. We don't just turn to certain passages that, that we think are helpful. God has given us everything we need in this book. And if it's in here, he's saying to us, you need this. And so that's the mentality we need to take this morning. That's the mentality that God has had to grow me in as I've entered into the text we're looking at today, is that this matters because God has said it matters. Because God has given it to us. So we need to know what he says. We may still have questions at the end. In fact, I'm sure we will. I guarantee it right now. You will have questions at the end. But eschatology matters to God. And eschatology mattered to the Apostle Paul, and it needs to matter to us as well. It needs to matter deeply to us. And so our passage this morning is 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 12. And today we're going to see four reasons why eschatology matters. Four reasons why eschatology matters. What the Bible teaches about the end times matters. So let's read the whole passage, and then we will walk through it. As we go. So 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. 
Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan and with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false, in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but have pleasure in unrighteousness. The Lord has given us this passage for our instruction and for our encouragement and for our equipping, ultimately to show us Christ and the gospel. So let's press in together. Eschatology matters. Four reasons why. And the first one is that it equips us with hope. Eschatology matters because eschatology equips us with hope. Look again at verses 1 through 3. These verses show us why Paul, one of the reasons why Paul was writing this letter. He just wrote 1 Thessalonians and he gave them instruction in a lot of areas, even in eschatology. But, But these verses show us one of Paul's concerns in writing this letter, and that's that a false teaching was infiltrating this church. A false teaching was coming into this church, and you see, Paul does not really know where it's coming from. He says, in verse 2, he says that it could be from a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seen to be from us. I'm not sure where it's coming from, guys, is what he's saying. I don't know where you've heard this, if it was a prophecy or if someone wrote a letter that they signed my name on it. or I'm not sure, but I want you to know, don't, don't be deceived by it, because it's not true. And here's what the false teaching is. Here's what, here's what they were claiming. The day of the Lord has already happened. Now, that's what the false teaching was. The day of the Lord has already happened. Now, again, we don't really know much more than that about the teaching. What were they? What do you mean the day of the Lord has happened? I mean, we're all still here, right? We don't, we don't see Christ. In our minds, we, we feel very confused. How could they even believe that? But we don't, we don't know what they were actually saying. Maybe they were saying that the, the day of the Lord happened spiritually, that, that it happened in a spiritual way. We, we, people have said that throughout history. Maybe they were saying it happened at Pentecost, and, and that's what was being referred to, and, and nothing else. But, but Paul writes to them in this teaching, and he's telling them, don't believe it. Don't be deceived. Don't be deceived about this. And, and let's remember, what is the day of the Lord? And when we see it in this passage, look at verse 1. He says, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him. Right? So, so the day of the Lord is the day that Jesus returns and gathers his church to himself. 
and judges the world. It's the day that Paul's been talking about in First and Second Thessalonians. It's the day we just sang about when we sang it is well, the day that Jesus returns, the skies open up, and he appears in glory, and he brings us to himself. And in that sense, the day of the Lord is our hope. That is our hope. And yet here are people saying it has already happened. Now, now look at what it's leading to in their lives. Paul gives them an instruction. He says, we ask you not to be quickly shaken in mind, or alarmed. So, so to be quickly shaken in mind is a way for Paul to say, don't be so easily moved from what you said you believed. He, he's not talking about just the, this, uh, this emotional distress at this point. He's talking about being moved in, in your belief from one position to another. You, you, you've been shaken in your mind from, from what I taught you to what these people are teaching you. Don't let that happen. How, how can you be so quickly moved to deny what we've said and to believe something else. Don't do that. And then he says, don't be alarmed. Don't be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed. And that, that word alarm means, means fear. It means, it means distress. See, Paul's looking at the Thessalonian church, and he's seeing this false teaching coming. And he's seeing that what it's doing to them is it is extinguishing their hope. And it's leading them to distress. It's leading them to fear. It's leading them to alarm. And, and, and of course it would. If, if, if Christ's return has already happened and somehow we missed it, or so, somehow what Paul said is not true, then, then of course that would lead to distress. Of course that would lead to alarm. And, and we need to see this principle here that, that eschatology matters because not, not because we need to know things, but because it changes the way we live. You see, it, it extinguished their hope when they adopted this belief. So, so when Paul says, let no one deceive you in any way, he's, he's not just wanting to make sure they believe the right things. He's looking out for their hearts, church. He's seen distress. He's seen anguish. He's, he's seen fear. He's seen hope snuffed out. And he sees that it's rooted in this belief. It's rooted in this, this belief about the end times. So eschatology matters because it, it, it equips us to live with the hope of Christ's return. And so, if we're deceived about eschatology, if we're deceived about the end times, then that's going to show itself in our lives. It's going to show itself by, by, by suppressing our sense of hope and increasing our sense of helplessness. So what's going to happen? So church, let me ask, what are some ways today that we might be deceived today about eschatology? What are some ways that we might be deceived today about the end times? I think one popular teaching, I was talking with... Uh, Mary about a few weeks ago that, that she was talking to a friend who believes that we are supposed to bring in the kingdom of God. That, that, that the kingdom is something that we work at and that we bring here, here on the earth as the church. And that is a distortion of what scripture says. That, that's, that's, that's a false view. And, and think about it. If you believe that, that the kingdom is dependent on us bringing it in, then what are you going to do with your life? You're, you're, going, to, you're going to seek cultural transformation. You're going to throw yourself in wherever you can to, to see to see evils eradicated and to see, see culture transformed and, and to Christianize as much as you can and, and you're going to realize this is helpless. We can't do it. I'm trying to make things better and things are just getting worse. <laughs> it's going to lead to distress. It's going to lead to anxiety. It's going to lead to fear. But the very popular view out there today that, that somehow we're supposed to make it happen. We can't make it happen, church. Jesus is going to come. He's going to establish his kingdom. Our job is to tell people how to be in it. 
our job is to live as citizens of the kingdom now and say, here's how you get to be part of that kingdom when the king comes. That's hope, not helplessness. Now, another false teaching that's more subtle, not really a teaching, but, but a, a belief, but it's just as deadly as what I just said, is that we view eschatology simply as unimportant. Again, eschatology matters, but when we view it as unimportant, we don't take the time to consider what God has said. What happens? We, we live with an eye on the first coming of Christ. We, we look back to the cross. We look back to forgiveness, but we don't look ahead to his return. We don't think about that. We just think about that as an abstract concept for theologians and seminaries. But church, to simply not think about the day of the Lord is just as dangerous as believing it's already come, really. That, that may sound like a, a ridiculous belief to us to say it's already come, but, but to just not think about it is just as dangerous to us. If you struggle with being alarmed, if you struggle with fear, with anxiety, with distress in your life, it's likely rooted in not believing about the return of Christ. If you're struggling with these things, that it's you need to trace back through those struggles, trace back through that fear, trace back through that, that distress and ask, what am I not believing about what Jesus has done and what he will do? Confess to the Lord that you've not been living by faith, and then feed your heart with the hope of being gathered to Christ. That is our hope. And we need to feed our hearts with that continually, church. Every day we need to feed our hearts not just with the message of the cross, but the point of that message. For, for the point of forgiveness is what? so that one day we can be gathered to Christ when he comes again. And if we just focus our eyes backwards and not forwards as well, then we're missing the whole point and we will live again with more helplessness than hope in our lives. And so church, I know I know that we struggle. We all struggle with fear, with anxiety, with distress, with depression. And one facet of that, one facet of it is that we need to fix our eyes forward on our hope. Eschatology matters because it equips us with that hope. The second reason that it matters is that eschatology prepares us for trial. Eschatology prepares us for trial. And I believe this is Paul's primary concern in this section of the letter. But before we read it, I want to give a few disclaimers. Okay? First, I've said this already, what we're about to read is hard to understand. All right? And, and, and listen, that's okay. And the Apostle Peter tells us it's okay. All right? So listen to the Apostle Peter. He is talking in this passage about the end times. And he says in 2 Peter 3, 15 and 16, And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given to him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them on these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand. So, Realize what we just read, church. The Holy Spirit inspired the Apostle Peter to tell us that some of the things Paul wrote about the end times are hard to understand. And that's not meant to discourage us. It's meant to encourage us. That's meant to say, say yes, it's hard to understand, so, so press in. God's given it to you. It's meant to encourage us to work hard to understand with the Spirit's help what God has said to us. So, so we don't need to act like it's not hard to understand. We just need to press in because of that, and ask the Spirit for help. But, but second, second kind of disclaimer I want to give 
is that our primary responsibility when we listen to the scriptures is to affirm what they say and submit to them. It's to affirm what scripture says and submit to it, even when we're not sure everything fits together. Okay, and, and listen to Deuteronomy 29.29. Listen to this verse. It says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. The secret things belong to our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all that God has said. What is that verse saying? It's saying that God has revealed everything we need to know to follow him by faith. But he has not revealed everything that we could know. All right? What that means is that it's okay, it's actually probably good, to have gaps in our theology. And I think this is where systems can go too far. Because because instead of just affirming what Scripture says and leaving room for areas where we're not sure how that fits together, we make these systems that begin actually contradicting other parts of Scripture to try to make sense of it ourselves. But we just need to realize God has revealed all we need to know to follow Him, but He's not revealed everything we could know. The secret things belong to Him. The things revealed belong to us. And we're going to follow Him with what He's revealed by faith. And the reason I give this disclaimer is because For months now, we've been in this series until he comes, and we have said over and over again, Jesus could come at any moment, right? And we have sung songs like, soon and very soon, my king is coming. But today's text has led some people to deny that that's true. And and the reason why is clear, because as we'll see, Paul says in today's text that certain things must happen before he returns. It's clear as day. We'll read it in a second. But, but here's, how, here's what we need to do with this. We can't let what we see in this passage lead us to, to deny what we see in other parts of Scripture. Does that make sense? We, we, we can't just focus in on this so closely that then we deny other parts of Scripture. We need to affirm what Scripture affirms. So, so listen to Jesus' words in Matthew 24. Jesus said, Stay awake, for you don't know on what day your Lord is coming. You must be ready For the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Jesus said that to his disciples. He said, you don't know when it's coming. He's going to come at an hour you don't expect, so be ready. He didn't say, listen, until these things come, you don't need to be ready. Until these things happen, just take it easy. No, he said, be ready. You don't know when. At the same time, we need to affirm what this passage is going to tell us, and that's that certain things will occur before he comes. And we don't need to synthesize these things perfectly in our minds. We can know that God knows more than we do. And we can have faith in both at the same time. We we can sing, soon and very soon, my king is coming. And we can know and look out for what Paul tells us to look out for in this passage. So those are disclaimers, okay? Disclaimers are over now. (laughs) Let's look at the text. Eschatology matters because it prepares us for trial. Let's read, again, these verses, and and we're going to read verses 3 through 10, and then walk through them together. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, 
so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what's restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he's out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. All right, it's a lot. Let's, let's walk through it slowly, okay? How does Paul counter the false teaching that the day of the Lord has come? He does it by reminding them that certain things must happen first. And specifically, he says two, two things need to happen, right? Two things. What are they? The rebellion needs to occur, and the man of lawlessness needs to be revealed. Now, this is where things begin to sound very foreign to our modern American Christian ears. We don't really talk about these things very much. We watch movies on them, but we don't really talk about them in church, right? And this is where we're tempted to skip over and just focus on Jesus coming back. But again, Paul, this is foundational. Paul says, don't you remember I told you these things when I was with you? Right? So we need to understand this. So Paul's teaching on the rebellion and the man of lawlessness does not start with Paul. All right, that's important to know. It starts with the book of Daniel. And then Jesus continues to develop it. And then after Paul comes, John continues to develop it. This is, this is a theme that runs through the scriptures. It's, it's not just one text, one place, but, but, but Old and New Testament, this comes up again and again. And here's just the, the basic teaching on what these things are. Both Daniel and Jesus prophesied that an end-time opponent of God would rise up and deceive many who claim to be God's people. He would be a man, not, 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 a, not, a, not a God, not an angel, not a demon. He would be a man, like you or me, who by the activity of Satan would assert himself to be God. And he would work many signs and wonders to attest to that claim. Can you guys think of any other man who said he was God and showed it by signs and wonders. The Lord, right? Jesus Christ came, and, and as fully man, he said, I am the Son of God. I came from heaven, and my, my works demonstrate it. And this is why the New Testament eventually develops this concept of the Antichrist. Because he is, he is imitating Christ, and he's saying he's God. He's even doing these signs and wonders that attest to that, but he's not. He's not Christ. He, he is the man of lawlessness, the man of sin, the man who throws off God and then he, he, he asserts himself to be God. And, and the text tells us he takes his place in the temple. There's a lot of views on, on what the temple is now. Is it a literal temple? Is it the Jewish temple? Is it a Gentile temple? Is it the church? We don't need to know exactly what he's talking about today. We need to recognize that what this man is going to do is he's going to assert himself as God. And he's going to deceive many who right now would claim to be followers of Christ. This word rebellion is probably better translated. Some of your Bibles may have this as apostasy. Apostasy. 
It's a falling away from the faith. He's going to deceive those who who are right now visibly in the faith by claiming to be God and by showing that with his works. He's He's going to be a deceiver. And Paul tells the Thessalonians, these things haven't happened yet, so we know the day of the Lord hasn't come yet. So he's assuring them, this, 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 this hasn't come yet because these things haven't happened yet, right? But then Paul goes into more detail. He could have just stopped there to say, so, so, so end of story. But, but, but he wants them to know more about this. And the reason why is because he wants to prepare them for it. Church, I believe that the church will be on the earth when these things occur. Because Paul writes to the church to tell them what to look for, tell them what to happen, what's, what's going to happen, tell them about it, and, and to prepare them for it. I, I'm in a class right now that has some exams, and my professor is, is wonderful because he's given us all the exam questions ahead of time. Now, I know it's supposed to be like seminary level, and so sometimes I wish, like, maybe you could just Test us harder, you know, don't let us know, but, but I'm, I'm, I'm grateful for it, all right? He, he's given us the essay questions ahead of time, and, and so I can prepare, right? I can, I can get ready. I can, I can look at the questions, figure out my answers, and go in. I can't bring my notes in, but I can be ready for it. Now, it would be foolish of me to ignore those, wouldn't it? It would be foolish of me to ignore those and to just go into that exam blind. I should use them to my advantage, be prepared, pass the test, that's what God is doing here for us, church. He, he is giving us ahead of time the things to look for, the things to know, things that could happen, that could have happened in the Thessalonian generation, that could happen in our generation. Because he wants us to be ready when they happen. Because it will be a test for our faith. It will be a test for our faith. There will be people all around us who call themselves Christians, who follow this man. There will be people all around us who, who visibly are part of the church, who are deceived, and, and who, who believe in what he says. And we're going to be isolated and, and separated and persecuted during that time. And Paul is telling us ahead of time, God is telling us ahead of time, so that we can be ready when these things come. We can understand what he's saying in these verses in, really in three stages. Right, this is the closest, I told Andrew, this is the closest I'll come to making a chart. At Redeemer, but the three stages: the present, the future, and the end. All right. I know the future and the end are both kind of the same thing, but the present, the future, and the end. All right. So, so presently, what does Paul say? He says in verse six, "You know what is restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work." Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. Okay, so right now, Paul says, the man of lawlessness is being restrained. There's a lot of discussion about what is restraining him. Who is this restrainer? And we're not going to answer that this morning. What we do know is that it says, so that he may be revealed in his time. Right? So we know whoever the restrainer is, Ultimately, God has a plan here. And he is, he is restraining, through whatever this agent is, restraining this man of lawlessness until the time is right to be revealed. And, and so the man of lawlessness is being restrained, but 
the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. What is the mystery of lawlessness? What, what, what does that mean? What is he talking about? It, well, he's talking about the, the presence already in the church of false teachers and of false teaching and of antichrists. If you, if you turn to 1 John chapter 2, look at 1 John chapter 2. This is important to see. First John chapter 2, verse 18, John says, Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore we know that it's the last hour. And, and so, yes, there's a future Antichrist, a future man of lawlessness, a future figure who's coming, but even now many Antichrists have come. And then later in chapter 4, he, he says, he says, Every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God is the spirit of the Antichrist. So, so, so these false teachers who come now and come with false teaching in the church and are infiltrating the church with these distortions of who Christ is, this is the mystery of lawlessness. It's the spirit of the Antichrist. It's, it's the present realities that the church already is facing in the first century and the 21st century. The mystery of lawlessness is already at work. That's, that's what's going on now. We, we, we battle against false teaching and false teachers that oppose Christ. Now in the future, Paul says that the man of lawlessness will be revealed. We've already said some about this. He's going to be revealed with great signs and great wonders, and, and people are going to follow him and be deceived by him, and a great apostasy is going to occur. That day's coming. But then look in verse 8. It seems that as quickly as he is revealed, what happens in verse 8? Then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. And so in the end, Jesus will return and he will judge this man of lawlessness. He will, says, kill him with the breath of his mouth. He, He will utterly bring him to his demise in an instant. This, this powerful figure that deceives so many people, Jesus will come and immediately end his influence. And he'll bring us to himself. That's how this ends. And church, here's why eschatology matters, because we need to be ready for these things. Right now, we need to understand that the mystery of lawlessness is already present. And so that means we need to be diligent to discern false teachers and false teaching. We need to be careful, even as we seek to work with people in our community, even as we seek to be charitable about differences that we might have, we need to be careful to distinguish differences and false doctrine. To distinguish between just minor disagreements and, and the spirit of the Antichrist that's in the world. There are false teachers and teaching all around us, church. And we need to stand against it. We need to know what's going on. And then we need to understand that things will not get better, things will get worse. Church, the last few months have been hard in so many ways. As a church, in your own lives, personally, sickness, struggles, trials. And I have prayed at times, Lord, essentially, please let up a little bit. I don't know how much more the church can take. I don't, I don't know if we can handle that. I don't know, if that, I don't know how we're going to respond to that. And the reality is, church... While the Lord can bring seasons of reprieve, the Christian life is a long life 
of suffering. The Christian life is a long life of trial, a long life of testing. And when these days come, it's not going to get better. It's going to get worse. It's going to get harder. The test will get greater. And we need to be ready for it. We need to, we need to know what's coming. We don't, we don't need to look for reprieve. We need to brace ourselves for what's coming and know how it ends that Jesus will return and he will bring a decisive, immediate end when he appears. Eschatology matters because it prepares us for this trial. This could happen in our generation. This could happen in your children's generation. And if you don't believe that the Antichrist is coming, then you don't believe that Christ is coming. You need to believe both. They're both here. So eschatology prepares us for trial. Third, eschatology matters because it reminds us of our task. It reminds us of our task. Look again at verses 9 and 10. We've looked at this some already. He says, The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders, with wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Let's focus a bit more than we have on who is being deceived. Who is being deceived? Paul says it's those who are perishing. Those who are perishing. Now remember, this is an apostasy. It's those who probably were part of the visible people of God who, who now are being shown for what they really are. Those who have not, look, look at what it says, those who did not love the truth and so be saved. Notice Paul doesn't say those who didn't believe the truth. He says they didn't love the truth. And I believe the reason Paul's saying they didn't love the truth is because these are visible believers. They're part of the visible people of God, so they've assented to these truths, but they've not loved them. They've believed the gospel, but they've not loved the God of the gospel. And because of that, they are perishing. They are perishing. They are destined for God's judgment. They will experience His wrath. And this church just reminds us of our task. It reminds us of what God has called us to do today. Until that day comes, what is our task? It is to go to them with that gospel truth. And not not just to call them to mental assent, not just to call them to agree to doctrine, not just to call them to become religiously Christian. It's to call them to love the God of the gospel to call them to repent of their love for pleasure and unrighteousness and to turn to God as their greatest treasure. It's to go to them and plead with them now, be saved. Be saved. And even this morning, if if you don't know and love Christ, if you couldn't sing from the heart, when we sang that song, if you couldn't sing from the heart, Jesus, we love you, ever adore you, if you don't feel that in your heart, then even if you have mental assent to the gospel, you need, you need to ask, do I, have I loved the truth? Or have I just believed the truth? Because, because God will judge those who do not love the truth. You, you were created to know Him. You were created to know Christ. He died for your sins so that you can know Him and be gathered to Him. And so this morning, turn to Christ and be saved. And church, go. Go with that message. Go to those all around us who claim to know Christ, but will be shown one day that they have not loved the truth. 
called them to make Christ their greatest treasure. And so eschatology matters, church, because it equips us with hope, it prepares us for trial, it reminds us of our task. And finally, eschatology matters because it centers us on God's glory. It centers us on God's glory. Look at verses 11 and 12 with me. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. The biggest question I have when reading this passage is why? Why do these things need to happen? We, we believe in the, the doctrine of hell. We believe that those who do not turn to Christ one day will suffer the judgment of eternal punishment in hell. And so why does God need to send a prior judgment of being blinded by the man of lawlessness? Why can't Jesus just return to judge the world and to save the church without all of this? These verses tell us why, church. It's not that Satan is such a formidable opponent. It's not that Satan is, is rallying his forces and that God can't do anything about it, but God knows he's going to win in the end. No, that's not it. Remember, Jesus is going to come and, and, and in a moment destroy the man of lawlessness. Look at what it says. It says, God sends them a strong delusion. God sends the man of lawlessness. Though, though he does come by the activity of Satan in such a way that God is, is righteous and apart and holy from what is happening with this man, God is still sovereignly the one who sends him into the world, who, who allows what's restraining him now to stop restraining him as part of his plan. He sends the one who will deceive the perishing. And, and this leads us to ask, how is that just? How is that right? How, how could God send someone who's going to deceive those who are perishing? And, and look, at this, that's exactly what it says. He sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who do not believe the truth but have pleasure in unrighteousness. How can God do that? Well, notice that this verse begins, verse 11 begins with the word, therefore. What is the therefore? Therefore, church. It says, because... They refused to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion. So what this text is saying is that as, as the gospel is brought to people and they reject the gospel, as, as, as we bring the gospel to someone and they refuse to love the truth, they have pleasure in unrighteousness, they refuse to be saved, God responds to their unbelief with a judgment of more unbelief. He responds to their hardness with a judgment of more hardness. The offer of the gospel does not last forever. There is a day coming 
For those who do not believe, when the offer will be removed, and God will judge them for their unbelief. And we see it here. So that all may be condemned who do not believe the truth, but have pleasure in unrighteousness. But again, church, why the judgment? Why, why, why this prior judgment to the final judgment? And, and here's what we need to realize about the scriptures. Here's what we need to realize about God: is that God is working all things for the grandest display of His glory. The point of redemptive history itself, the point of every action in history, is that God would magnify His glory to the greatest degree possible for those who are saved. That that, that one day, we who by grace have been saved, we who were called out of that by His grace, would, would see His glory in its fullest display. Just as at the cross, God God waited till the 11th hour. Satan looked like he was victorious at the cross. Satan looked like he had defeated the Son of God. Jesus was hanging dead on a cross. But through resurrection, God demonstrated his power in the greatest possible way. Demonstrated his glory in the greatest possible way. And he does that here too. This it's gonna it's gonna feel hopeless, church. We will be we will be in a hopeless situation. Everyone around us will have deserted us. The, the whole world will seem to go after this man of lawlessness. We will be the only ones who, who are not believing this and following this. And it's going to feel hopeless. And in that moment, Jesus will return and declare his decisive victory. And it will be a display of God's glory that we will revel in forever. Church, this is what is called Big God Theology. Big God theology. Theology is not, not centered on man. It does not revolve around us. It is centered on God and revolves around His glory. Eschatology matters because it confronts us with these realities. And it recenters us on His glory. It reminds us that life does not revolve around us, but around Him. And in this, it heightens our thankfulness for His grace and our enjoyment of that glory. When we see these judgments happening in church, we will not take pride and our discernment. We, we will not boast that we are standing firm. We will recognize that the only reason we are not being judged with them is because of the grace of God overcoming our unbelief for His glory. The glorious judgment of God on unbelief will heighten the glorious grace of God that He's extended to us through Jesus Christ. And here's the thing, church. When our eschatology causes us to recenter on the glory of God, then it also does these other things too. Because if we are centered on God's glory, what is our hope? Our hope is the glory of God. And so as we become centered on His glory, our hope rises, our hope grows, because we are looking forward to the day that we behold His glory. As we recenter on His glory, it prepares us for trial because that glory is the vision that will cause us to persevere through that trial. It, it, it will remind us of our task as we'll be fueled to spread the gospel for the glory of God. We, we will want to make His glory known. And so, church, God's purpose is to glorify Himself so that all may see and be glad in His glory. Make that your purpose. That's the final application today. Make that your 
purpose, to live for the glory of God today, to live for the glory of God in the day of trial, to live for the glory of God until the day that Jesus comes and we see his glory in all its fullness. Let's stand and sing together to the glory of God.